Daniel Shapiro served as U.S. Ambassador to Israel under President Obama from 2011 to 2017. Most recently, he has been a distinguished visiting fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies at Tel Aviv University. With Israeli elections approaching, President Trump's envoys working on a new plan aimed at resolving the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and officials of the Islamic Republic of Iran continuing to threaten the Jewish state with annihilation, we're eager to hear his thoughts. Also on hand to provide both questions and answers is Jonathan Chanzer, FDD Senior Vice President for Research, who has written two books on Palestinian politics. I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981, who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Yesterday, the president tweeted that he believes it's time for the United States to recognize Israeli sovereignty in the Golan Heights. That's not a formal recognition. It sounds like next week when Prime Minister Netanyahu is visiting Washington, he'll sign an executive order that will more formally convey U.S. recognition, which is fully within his power. The United States will be the only country that will recognize Israel's sovereignty. And I'm concerned about the decision for a number of reasons. One is the status quo, which has existed for many years, uh, has served Israel's interests and the United States' interests very well. Israel does retain control of the Golan Heights, that's obvious. It's been eight years since the last attempt to negotiate peace between Israel and Syria, which Prime Minister Netanyahu participated in on the basis of a withdrawal of Israel from the Golan Heights. But that prospect is completely pushed into the uh, into history by the collapse of the Syrian state. But the status quo serves Israel's interests very well, serves the United States' interests well. Uh, it serves Israel's security, um, but it's also kept the issue kind of quietly off the international agenda. Um, I'm concerned that the recognition by the United States is going to force, uh, like it already did today, a lot of actors, Russia, Iran, Hezbollah, Gulf states, Europeans, Syrian opposition actors, who have previously ignored this issue to have to assert themselves as being opposed to Israeli sovereignty, we might find that this issue gets a lot more international attention, not to Israel's or the United States' benefit, uh, than it ever did before the United States made a recognition. So I, I think the, the, the Trump administration is a sort of planning that uh, would help mitigate uh, whatever the, the downsides would be of this decision. But we'll have to see. Time will tell. It looks like the, the die is cast and the decision will be formalized next week. So welcome. Thank you. And uh, yes, and let's begin with the elections coming up in Israel in April. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has served in that office, I think, longer than any other prime minister at this point. No? Almost. Almost. I think this summer, if he stays prime minister, he'll pass David Ben-Gurion. He'll pass David Ben-Gurion. Okay, at that point. But at this point, he does face uh, a serious challenge, or one might say he faces two serious challenges, right? He does. Uh, both a political challenge and a legal challenge, right. and they merge. Uh, this is a fascinating election in part because of what it's not about. It's not about security issues. There's no real difference between the main parties or candidates on how Israel should manage Iran or Syria or Lebanon, Hezbollah, those types of questions. It's not about the economy, which is performing well and most people are, are reasonably satisfied with it. It's not about the Palestinian issue for sure, uh, where uh, the only politician who was seriously interested in running on a ticket that would highlight uh, negotiations with the Palestinians, Sipi Livni, discovered that she had so little support that she dropped out of the race and nobody maybe picked her up. Maybe dropped out of politics. And maybe dropped out of politics and nobody picked her up. Uh, it's really about one issue and that is Bibi Netanyahu himself. Yeah. And you can characterize it as 
BB fatigue versus mm. the indispensable Netanyahu. Mm. Those are the two camps uh, right now in Israeli politics. Those who see him as a uniquely capable figure, uh, very experienced, of course, more experienced than any other politician by a long shot, uh, who has quite a number of achievements to his credit uh, in terms of Israel's security, economy, how he manages the relationships between with, true, with Trump and Putin and, of course, all the regional mm. problem actors opening Israel's doors to relationships with Arab states and other countries. Those are those who argue nobody else could uh, safeguard the country, keep us secure and uh, achieve those things besides this very experienced uh, individual. That's the indispensable Netanyahu yeah. camp. Uh, the Bibi fatigue camp are those who don't necessarily disagree with him on a lot of those policy questions but uh, feel that his style of leadership is divisive, feel that there are ethical issues that have now been raised by these uh, pending indictments, uh, feel that he is uh, – uh, Israeli democracy needs a change of leadership to, to refresh itself. Uh, and those are really the two camps. They're actually quite uh, similarly sized and the big question now is will the announcement of these pending indictments move a few uh, – seats worth maybe 150 or 200,000 voters from the indispensable camp into the fatigue camp. And Jonathan, one thing I, I want you to explain to readers, readers to listeners, as as best you can in, in, in summary, is who, he, who Netanyahu is facing this time, because it's, he's facing actually two candidates who are aligned with one another. If, if, if not more. And actually, um, Dan, I, I want to circle back uh, with a question about this. But yeah, he, he's going to be facing off against Benny Gantz, who would be uh, the presumptive uh, prime minister challenge. Uh, and Benny Gantz is a former chief of staff of the army and a very impressive resume. Uh, on top of that, you have uh, Yair Lapid, who is a very charismatic, well-spoken a uh, good-looking guy who I think puts a different face on Israeli diplomacy. Um, and he is actually a fiercely secular politician um, and I think has been the consistent challenger to Bibi in terms of numbers over the last several years. On top of that, you have Bogi Yalon, the former defense minister, uh, under um, – uh, Bibi, who defected uh, out of frustration with, with the with the sitting prime minister, but you know, actually, all of this uh, has me thinking, Dan, that you know, uh, when we talk about kind of uh, the fatigue with Bibi or the the people who are talking about the need for change, I do wonder whether it is just really a question of temperament at this point, right? You have a guy like Gantz who will come out and just say, look. We're going to do what we need to do from a military perspective, but it, it lacks that ideological edge. Uh, you have a guy like Lapid who is probably just as skeptical of uh, the Palestinians and is not rushing to make a peace agreement, but he's not steadfastly opposed to it in the same way that uh, perhaps Bibi has been. So do you think maybe there is a temperament issue or an, or an ideology issue at play here as well? There is, uh, but it's quite muted. What's very interesting about this joint party that has now been formed and which now is polling higher than the Likud party, this blue and white party, which is the Gantz-Lapid amalgamation, uh, although the question is if they are polling large enough to form a coalition. What's interesting about the way they're presenting themselves is they're not running as a center-left. They're not even running as a center-right party. They're running as a definitively right-of-center party mm-hmm. focused on security. They've got three senior generals, Gantz and Yalon and Gabi Ashkenazi in their, in their top four seats. So security-minded, clean government mm-hmm. and unifying politics. That's how they're presenting themselves. They don't talk about the Palestinians. They don't talk about – uh, these other security issues. They basically talk about us, Israeli society. How are we relating to one another? But notably absent is this question of religion. Yes, it is. Uh, and and that has uh, probably hardened the support for Netanyahu from uh, religiously minded voters, those who for whom those issues are their priority issues. And so that, that gives him a strong and rather stable base. In fact, I would say his base is quite uh, committed uh, because they may view him as the only one who will protect those kinds of issues and interests. Um, And they are the ones most likely to be skeptical of the uh, legal charges against him that they maybe are some kind of witch hunt. They maybe are some kind of uh, uh, effort by various uh, liberal establishment elements uh, to uh, defeat a conservative uh, prime minister, a bit more hawkish, a bit more – close to the religious parties, uh, that they can't defeat at the ballot box through legal means. I just want to talk about that for one minute because people hear that there are ethical charges against him, that there are corruption charges, and I think that stains his reputation. I'm not competent to judge necessarily. 
But there is another view, uh, Avi Bell, who you probably know. I know John and I have, have talked to him in Israel on, on occasion, an Israeli legal scholar and a professor. He recently wrote the following, the criminal charges against the prime minister lack legal substance and they threaten both the rule of law in Israel and the health of its democracy. And Alan Dershowitz has said pretty much the same thing. So I think we at least raise the possibility of these legal charges are politically motivated rather than substantive. That's certainly the prime minister's contention, uh, and he'll have a chance to make that case in a hearing before the actual indictments and if he's indicted in, in the legal proceedings. Um, the, the, the flip of that uh, uh, contention, of course, is that the police commissioner uh, who led the investigations is uh, someone that Netanyahu panpicked and appointed to that job. Uh, not somebody who's thought to have uh, strong left-wing leanings. The same is true of the attorney general who has now announced the uh, indictment, someone Netanyahu handpicked for a previous job and then this job. Uh, and both are considered very uh, serious law enforcement professionals, even coming out of a religious and probably right-wing uh, political point of view. Uh, and they checked their uh, assumptions about the charges they are now bringing forward with a, a wide range of legal scholars and there seemed to be uh, uh, something close to a consensus among former attorneys general, former commissioners, former prosecutors that it was appropriate to bring the charges and appropriate to bring them now. Uh, but obviously there's another side of it. One thing, one thing that's also interesting is the facts are not really in dispute. The facts of what his actual conduct was, uh, he seemingly agrees to but condemns those were not – he did not cross any legal lines. Well, we're talking about – then I'll let you talk about this, John, but things like – Taking cigars, is that okay or is that not? Uh, how many cigars or too many cigars? Did he try to get better press coverage? Mm -hmm. Not a crazy thing for a politician to do. What did he agree to? Go ahead, John. You want to yeah, I mean, look, I, I would say that uh, the, the facts have been out there for, for quite some time. For several years, they've been talking about these various files uh, that have been compiled uh, about the prime minister's conduct. I think there there is an open question right now, really, just about the timing. Um, these things were always going to be weighing on voters' uh, minds as they went into the polls. These are things that everybody knew about going in. The escalation of this less than two months before an election is, I think, what everybody's scratching their head about. Whether this, you know, why didn't this come out before uh, new elections were announced, or why wouldn't this come out after a coalition has been formed? And I think that's really at the crux of the debate. If if I'm reading the Israeli press correct, I think that's right. And uh, certainly, Prime Minister Netanyahu obviously hopes to win the election. He may be able to win the election in part by making that argument that this is a politically motivated charge. If he does win. He will certainly then argue to the attorney general uh, who won't have formally filed the indictments yet and ultimately to the courts, you can't possibly undo a democratically run election and remove a prime minister that people chose knowing what uh, he was suspected of or what he was being accused of. So he will certainly use that uh, as part of his argumentation uh, if he wins. If he loses, uh, then he'll obviously still have to face the legal proceedings but without some of the protection of having won at the ballot box. And you said earlier that one of the issues in the election would not be our relations with the Palestinians. Is that because none of the candidates at this point really see a clear path to, re to in any way resolve the long-standing Palestinian-Israeli conflict? They just don't. They don't disagree. There's just no way to do it at this point. Yes, that's a consensus among those who desire uh, an eventual return to negotiations and the eventual separation of Israelis and Palestinians in a two-state solution and those who desire other outcomes. Uh, and that's not their uh, primary focus. But nobody believes it's possible right now. I mean, go ahead, Jeff. Well, you know, I think it's interesting, you know, when we talk about this issue, this is the, usually the one issue that kind of defines politics in Israel, right? You, you know, that's what, dif that's what differentiates left and right. And what we're actually saying right now is the left and the right don't exist as they used to any longer. We're looking at a very different kind of an election. And we've really probably been there since 2005, right? Since the end of the second intifada, there's been this, I think, uh, broad assumption uh, in the Israeli public that there's no way to revive the peace process. People have been skeptical of, uh, of, of the Bush administration, of the Obama administration, and even the Trump administration, despite, I think, Israeli's perception that he's been very pro-Israel. So, you know, what I wanted to ask you is, I mean, how, how should we interpret 
this changing of the Israeli political spectrum. I mean, we have it to a certain extent, I think, here in the United States. We're watching our parties change right before our eyes. I think we're seeing something very similar um, in Israel. And I think there are a lot of people who are wondering how permanent this is. It's uh, definitely a shift and and you can see it based on probably reaction to of Israelis to the Second Intifada uh, after the breakdown of the Oslo process 2001 to 2005, bus bombings, cafe bombings, then the aftermath of the withdrawal from Gaza, uh, which produced uh, Hamas, a uh, terrorist organization that fires rockets and then later dug tunnels to attack Israelis. Uh, and that has uh, cons- uh, con- contributed to a, a steady shift to the right. Although one thing that's interesting, Anshel Pfeffer and Harts just wrote about this the other day, how the shift to the right may in fact in some ways hurt Netanyahu in this election because there's a right-wing alternative mm. if you want clean government and you still want to make sure security is protected because so many other parties are over there on the right and a splintering among the far-right parties that he also needs for his coalition. But it is hard to know how permanent this is. I think it is certainly – uh, not possible to expect any change in that attitude among Israelis while you have the current Palestinian leadership in place. Uh, President Abbas and, of course, Hamas in Gaza. President Abbas, though, known at this point as a leader who is not going to have the strength or the flexibility to make uh, big concessions, to tell some very hard truths to his own people. Of course, he needs to be matched by an Israeli leader who can also uh, tell some of those hard truths. It may be that Lapid or Gantz uh, right wing or center right, but a little bit more open to that with a Palestinian uh, counterpart that they could work with. This is, I think, a bit uh, far fetched to imagine in the near term, but it may be that together they could start to to shift both Israeli and Palestinian uh, attitudes back toward a two state solution. But uh, I think we should also prepare ourselves for the possibility, we as Americans, and thinking about our policy uh, for the uh, situation in which a two-state solution is is sort of receding uh, from viability into the future. I very much want to keep it viable and, and alive and uh, and believe that should be the focus of our policy. But maybe at the same time, do the intellectual heavy lifting about, well, what if it doesn't happen? How will we how will we uh, protect our interests? How will we sustain our relationship with our partner and and the rest of our regional uh, parties? And, and and ironically, that's kind of the way the IDF approaches this, right? Where they talk about easing restrictions on the Palestinians, making things a little bit better to perhaps forestall or prevent conflict. It's more about conflict management from the IDF perspective than it is about peacemaking, and that may be where we where we end up. That is true, although I find that most of my conversations with uh, senior IDF officers, past and present, uh, leave me with a strong impression that they uh, have very deep worries about the long-term viability of full Israeli control, uh, even with greater uh, maybe freedom of movement and certain autonomy elements for Palestinians, uh, both because of some security concerns, but also because of what it will do for Israel's Jewish and democratic identity. This is the Catch-22, or as Mika Goodman puts it, the Catch-67, and John and I talked to him recently, and it's an, as he sees it, a, a problem you can't solve because on the one hand, yeah, for Israelis to continually forever for the foreseeable future dominate essentially Palestinian communities um, is morally in other ways untenable. On the other hand, if, if the Israelis were to do what the BDS advocates want, simply get out of the West Bank, leave entirely as the Israelis did from Gaza in 2005, well, you have to expect that the West Bank would look pretty much like Gaza looks today. And once you have missiles and even mortars raining down on the close-in population centers, I mean, Gaza, is you've got communities, Israeli communities nearby, but not big population centers. From the West Bank, from the heights there, you have Tel Aviv, you have Jerusalem, you have the international airport, Ben-Gurion. What happens at that point? The Israelis have to defend themselves. They have to go back in. And it's a bloodletting on both sides, which you would think that those who champion the Palestinian cause don't want. But either they're oblivious to that reality or they say, yeah, that's the price you got to pay. The worse, the better. If we're going to ever defeat Zionism, which means extinguish the Jewish state, this is what's going to have to happen. Isn't that correct? Well, certainly for those who uh, are BDS advocates and within those, those who uh, really seek the end of the existence of Israel, they would shed no tears if that was the 
that was the the flow of events. I, you know, I, I've talked to Micha Goodman as well about uh, uh, this, and and I think he's on to something very uh, uh, very wise, which is to say, if we are in a phase when there is simply no way you can resolve. Uh, this conflict in a permanent way. Uh, you know, how can you reduce its impact right. on the lives of both Israelis and Palestinians? And I think that there is wisdom in that, although I've challenged him to see if there's a way to add to his formula the preservation of an eventual two-state uh, outcome that looks more like what we have traditionally envisioned, obviously only when there's different leaders and only when those leaders have stepped forward in a way, and especially on the Palestinian side, to uh, break with narratives that are fully inconsistent with uh, a two-state outcome and, 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 and fully delegitimizing of Israel's existence. It has to be the other. It has to be recognizing Israel's legitimacy, its existence, its security needs. Uh, and there has not yet emerged a Palestinian leader who can play that role. So, I mean, let's suppose, hypothetically, you know, Benny Gantz becomes the next prime minister. And let's suppose he decides that a two-state solution is really what he wants. Well, Hamas is not talking about that much less agreeing to that. And I think you agree, Mahmoud Abbas is not at this point in his life. Whatever he may have thought in the past, he doesn't want his legacy to be the guy who accepted Zionism. He doesn't want, he doesn't have the authority to say, okay, this is where we're going to the Palestinians and be sure that they're going to say, well, if you say so, then it must be right for us. For all, the, all those reasons, he's going to say no. So the question is, who follows him? And I think, and John certainly written about this, we have no idea who is, we can talk about who will succeed um, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu because we know who the up-and-comers are within the political spectrum of Israel. We don't really know that in terms of the Palestinians because they have never put into place the institutions and habits of a real state. They want to declare themselves a state. They want to be recognized as a state. But a state has more than just a flag. It has institutions which they haven't built. One of is you have elections more than once every 14 or so years, and you have a succession plan, and that's never come about. Uh, Palestinian succession, I think John probably would agree with this statement, is probably the biggest black box in the Middle East. I know many Palestinians. Uh, I'm sure John knows many more than I do. Uh, and I know many Israelis and quite a number of Arab leaders. And I couldn't find anybody in any of those circles who really can tell you who the next Palestinian leader is or even how it's or going how it's to been. happen. Yeah. Uh, and that raises just huge uncertainty. And we can all name eight or ten candidates or scenarios. But the, how that's actually going to unfold, uh, how such uh, candidates or scenarios would actually produce a leader who could be uh, taboo-breaking uh, and really challenge their own people and reassuring to the Israeli side and building a partnership with an Israeli leader, let's say a Benny Gantz or a Yair Lapid, who may be uh, a bit more open than uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu at this stage of his career is uh, to a two-state solution. Uh, it's it's so uncertain, uh, which, which puts us in a, this very difficult mode. How do you, if you take my uh, uh, bottom line uh, as the right frame, how do you preserve the viability of the two-state solution for what may be one year or two years or five years or 10 years or 50 years right. until you have the constellation yeah. of leaders who can build that partnership, take those risks, reinforce each other, educate their own people, shift public attitudes on their people when obviously there will be further slides in public attitudes in the meantime and maybe some uh, further changes on the ground that make it, uh, make it very hard to reverse. So that brings us, it seems to me, to the to the, to the President Trump's great desire to have the deal of the century, and he's put in charge his advisor and son-in-law Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt, and to an extent I think Ambassador David Friedman, your successor. And what John and I know is, as you know, they've been working very hard on this. I think they've become reasonably sophisticated about this. Nobody can understand the Middle East in in one lifetime, but uh, it but they've done fairly well. On the other hand, it's I find it, and I'm curious to know your view, no matter how good their plan is, I don't see how it ever gets implemented. Uh, I'm definitely with you there. I'm not sure it gets presented, and I'll explain why. Okay. First of all, I, I, I give them, A, credit for taking this issue seriously, and and I think they do, and I value that. Uh, and exactly what the plan is, none of us know. I also am impressed by their ability to prevent leaks. Having worked on this issue in a previous administration, I wish we were as successful at preventing leaks of our ideas. It could be uh, the only thing that this White House is good uh, at preventing. It is the only thing, but yeah. they're darn good at it. So I, I you know, hats off to them. 
But I'm I'm quite puzzled as to what the plan could be if presented. And here's why. I, I, I think there's only really two scenarios of what this plan looks like. One is something resembling uh, the two-state solution as we have previously uh, envisioned it. It won't be exactly the same as Obama might have written it or Bush might have written it, uh, but it would have a Palestinian state in some contiguous territory of the West Bank and, and Gaza pending Hamas's removal, uh, some Palestinian presence that they'll identify as their capital in East Jerusalem, uh, the security requirements for Israel, recognition of Israel, no right of return of refugees. These are the basic elements and it will have that. Uh, that's one scenario. Uh, and the other scenario is something that looks nothing like uh, a two-state solution as we have envisioned it, but rather some long-term uh, islands of Palestinian autonomy without anything that looks like sovereignty and you no know, capital and, and, and the like. Well, the first is one that almost is by definition necessary to get the support of Arab states uh, who have a position. They have the Arab Peace Initiative. King Salman has reiterated that as the Saudi position, even though MBS is a bit iconoclastic. He hasn't really challenged that. Uh, and they have Arab publics that they will have to answer to. I think if it doesn't have the core elements of two states, they won't be able to support it. Whereas uh, Netanyahu, if he survives this election, he will almost certainly be dependent on the most uh, right-wing elements of Israeli society uh, and his own party who are vehemently and vocally now opposed to two states, opposed to any settlement restrictions, certainly opposed to a Palestinian presence or capital in East Jerusalem. And I see no Venn diagram between a uh, between a plan that Arab states could support and uh, an Israeli coalition, certainly led by Netanyahu, could support. Uh, now, uh, the third option, of course, is that they don't present the plan, or at least after the election, mm-hmm. which is their current target, they t- say, well, let's wait and see what co- what government, what coalition emerges from uh, the, the Israeli election, which is a plausible thing to do. And then you get into the summer, uh, and you may find that you have no overlap once again. Palestinians are not so relevant to this question because the deterioration of their relationship with the Trump administration means they will reject anything. But if you're looking for something that you could get both – uh, an Israeli uh, indication of uh, willingness to work with it from and some support from Arab states. At the moment, there's no Venn diagram unless you have a very, very different Israeli coalition. You know, I, I would just say a couple of things. One is that um, before we even look at the plan, I think the Trump administration has done a lot to impact the conflict. Uh, whether it's moving the embassy uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, whether it's calling out UNRWA about the way that it calculates refugees. And just uh, remind people that UNRWA is the UN, UN organization that supports the Palestinians, provides education and jobs and all that, but has become very much – a handmaiden of Hamas. It's become a perpetuation of the Palestinian-Israeli yeah. conflict because yeah. what they've done is they've looked at not only just the original refugees from the 1948 war, but they've actually now factored in the kid, the the children, grandchildren, great great grandchildren of these original refugees are now also identified as, refugees, as current right. refugees, which takes the number from roughly let's say 30,000 current refugees, actual refugees, to somewhere around five million. Right. And so the Trump administration has actually punctured that um, and have challenged the way that they do the math. Um, the Some of the withholding of funds to the PA because of, uh, of terrorism concerns, uh, even the closing of the embassy here in, in Washington, there have been these moves that I think the Trump administration has made to shape the conflict from the outside in. And then comes this question of what happens afterwards. And, and, you know, you're right. We don't know a lot about it. And that's why some people liken this whole thing to an episode of Seinfeld, you know, a show about nothing. Um, I think there is something there. I think that when you look at or listen closely to the, to these officials, what you hear is that it's going to be focused, uh, more on economics than on, uh, handing over symbols of statehood. Um, that the goal is to bring the Palestinians uh, closer to where they probably should be based on education um, and and kind of the rest of the region where the rest of the region is. Not that that's been a terrific bar, but they're still below it in many ways. Um, but then I think there's also a question of whether this can be – this whole thing can be used uh, to bring the Israelis closer to the Arabs and to give the Arabs – you know, what I keep hearing from folks inside is um, – they, the the Arab uh, states need cover. They need to see that something has been offered, and that if the Palestinians say no, well, they can at least move forward from from there. Um, so you know, um, 
I, I think these are some of the elements uh, of, of what we're looking at. But I, again, I think it still very much remains to be seen. But the one thing that I actually wanted to ask you is um, the question of how this plan is released. Um, you can imagine that if the plan is released now, it would impact the elections. Uh, right, it would become something that people would be debating. Even its rumor of what it contains has become an issue in the elections. That's right. So then there there is a school of thought that says, well, then, uh, well, wh- why not release the plan in between the actual elections and the formation of the coalition? But of course, that would influence the coalition. Um, right, that it would be once again meddling in Israeli politics. And then imagine if it's released afterwards. And you have a, uh, a prime minister on the right. Let's just say, for example, it's BB wins again. Uh, the very introduction of that could pull apart his right wing coalition. So in your view, when is the right time to release a plan like this? <laughs> if it's going to – I mean especially within the next – let's just say three-month period, it has the potential to be um, a, you know, an explosive device. It does. Um, I think introducing it during an election is uh, generally not the right way for us to deal with an ally while they're going through their democratic process. Uh, it does prevent an X factor into it. Uh, I, I might find occasions where I might think differently about that, but I think as a general principle, that's, uh, that's probably right. Uh, I think, you know, there was a theory that uh, it would be presented after the election and by being a, a plan that would shift a bit back toward something like a traditional two-state solution model, it would open up space for Netanyahu to form a government with the parties to his left, uh, a much more centrist coalition than the one he currently leads. Uh, and maybe that's even what he wants. Uh, that might have been in theory possible before these indictments were announced. But now Gantz and Lapid have announced they will not sit in the coalition with a government uh, led by a prime minister under pending indictment. So the only coalition available to him are the hardest of the hard right who will oppose anything that resembles a two-state solution. So after the election is not a very viable uh, time to offer it either, again, if that's who's likely to be prime minister. I think it's much more viable to wait and see what your Israeli government is and what uh, their policies are. But to be honest, uh, I think any presentation of any plan should be based on a supposition it's not going to lead anywhere uh, in the near term. It's not going to be implemented. Uh, the Palestinians obviously will reject it. The Arab states might be able to make some positive noises about it. But basically, it should be a marker for what we hope to achieve over time. Uh, if it's, again, uh, something that resembles a two-state solution, I would welcome that because I would like to reinforce that notion and having it come from a Trump administration would in some ways be very helpful to setting the region's expectations. If it's something that seems to cast the two-state solution aside in favor of long-term islands of Palestinian autonomy, I would hope they don't present it because I think that's uh, not a plan we should uh, try to base a long-term future on. Let me toss out a thought that may spark a, a bit of a disagreement, which I want to do because we're agreeing way too much <laughs> to, to, today. And that is that I think it's a good chance that what this plan is going to do is offer the Palestinians huge amounts of money if they accept the Jewish state, if they accept it. And it's going to try to seduce them with money. And I also think this is a bipartisan misunderstanding so that we think that once we have trade with China and China's in the WTO, of course they're going to moderate. Why not? And President Obama thinks, hey, I'm going to give a lot of money to the Islamic Republic of Iran, and they're going to want to worry about their people and health care and getting chickens in every pot, and they're going, to be mo- they're going to be moderate in a few years. This will work out just fine. And the Trump administration says, yeah, if we give them some money, they won't want to fight anymore. They'll be bourgeois and moderate like us. And this is us. We with all due respect to Madonna, we material girls thinking that's the way the world works and not understanding that, no, this is our psychology is not the same as the psychology of everybody else in the world. There are other things that motivate people besides money. And I think a lot of Palestinians, not all, would rather remain poorer and maintain their grievance and their anger and think about the day when they can take everything away from the damn Jews, take Haifa, take Tel Aviv, take it all. And they may also think once we get that, we'll be rich too in a different way. They don't understand what makes a rich and prosperous society because that requires a degree of real economic sophistication. I would argue there are plenty of people in this country who don't understand what makes a prosperous society um, and seek to simply milk the cow without feeding it. 
you disagree with me, please <laughs> well, get angry. There are a lot, no, there are a lot of things <laughs> in that question. Uh, first of all, it, it may be that that's the Trump model uh, to try to flood the zone with money and let that be the dampener on on the conflict. And there are a lot of reasons. A lot, a lot of what you said is probably true that that's not by itself going to uh, resolve an identity conflict or resolve people's sense of uh, loss or statelessness or or grievance against uh, someone who they feel has taken what's theirs. Um, I also don't know if it's going to even materialize because, uh, first of all, the Trump administration is not uh, very enthusiastic about putting money uh, on the table. It may be money from the Gulf states and others who have a reason to keep Trump happy at this point. They do have a reason to keep Trump, ha- Trump happy, although their history is also when asked to put some skin in the game to ask, well, what's the American skin in the game? So at least they're partners to it or rather than – Or they say yes and not do Or they say yes and not do it. So whether or not they can actually extract those funds from the Gulf states without either being able to show that it's leading somewhere, that the those – governments can justify to their people the Palestinians' cause is not being abandoned or by showing that Americans are putting skin in the game. I, I, I have my doubts and, of course, Jared Kushner has been in the Gulf this week, so we'll, we'll probably get some sense of that. Um, I, look, I, I think uh, it, it is in Israel's interest and, I, again, I hear this from uh, Israeli security officials as often as anybody else to uh, improve living standards, improve conditions for Palestinians. That's why uh, there's actually some concern about the cuts in the USAID program, programs uh, that go beyond what was required by the Taylor Force Act, which was a withholding in response to payments to terrorists. Uh, there's concern about a law that passed in Congress last year. Now it's enforced the Anti-Terrorism Clarification Act that withholds funds or has led the Palestinians to refuse funds for the security forces who have been good partners. There's value in providing those funds, uh, us, the United States, and also our partners to keep Palestinians' uh, uh, living standards uh, higher and maintain a certain level of stability. West Bank and Gaza or just West Bank? Well, West Bank and Gaza, uh, it's much harder in Gaza because there you're dealing with a government uh, run by a terrorist organization. Um, But, you know, then at the same time to make clear to Palestinians that there's a, a commitment to help them achieve course, their economic and, and living standard goals and even a commitment over time to help them achieve their political goals as long as those political goals are a realistic and be consistent with a model in which Israeli legitimate aspirations for security, recognition, sovereignty, uh, uh, ending the conflict so that these questions of uh, Israel's uh, ability to exist in, in any borders, including, you know, the uh, places it's it's uh, been part of Israel since its founding uh, is no longer on the table. Now that may take a generation, or it may take more than a generation for a Palestinian leader and a uh, reform of their education system, and even a just kind of reform of their society uh, to take hold. There's no question the narrative of eventually we will replace Israel everywhere uh, is still has still has currency. But there's something else that has currency among a younger generation of Palestinians, and that is, you know what. Uh, we're giving up on the two-state solution. We thought in the 90s and early 2000s maybe that was the path, but it clearly isn't going to be the path. Our own leaders failed. The Israelis failed us. The Americans failed us, however they define it. And now our future will focus for the near term not on politics, on our family lives, on our professional lives, but we'll wait. And over time, as the demographics uh, continue to lead toward parity of uh, Arab and Jewish populations between uh, the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, we will then in a generation uh, demand a one-person, one-vote regime over that entire territory. And that international pressure will uh, give us uh, the rights we seek in a, a binational state rather than in, a, in, a, in, a, in an independent Palestinian state. And if that becomes the dominant uh, uh, sort of political narrative among the next generation of Palestinians, it, it's just that much harder uh, to uh, restore uh, an end, st- uh, hope yeah. for an end state that in which both peoples achieve their their objectives. Well, I, I certainly hear you on that, though. I find it hard to believe that Israelis, left or right, are going to say, oh, you know what, this is a good idea. We have all these people in the West Bank and in Gaza who really want to slit our throats and now they're saying they want to be Israeli citizens, so we should simply accept that. No, we don't. Well, I don't think it's likely to happen, but the, the, the very presentation of that question is that moment of impossible dilemma for Israel's uh, Jewish and democratic identity, and how does it well, sustain both? except the, certainly the, in the West Bank, it would be more natural for, for that entity to affiliate 
with Jordan, which after all is Jordan is 75 percent of historic Palestine. Its population is majority Palestinian, the remainder being indigenous Bedouins uh, tribes and the Hashemites who come from Arabia. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but if you're going to do it now, could you have and this is all. Could you have some Benelux confederation where the West Bank and Jordan and Israel in some way form a common market without having a majority Palestinian Arab Muslim population uh, vote for who's the next prime minister of Israel? Yeah, theoretically you could, but as you say, it's a generation or so off. I just think to, to push real hard that to say once the Palestinians say, hey, we want to be Israeli citizens, the Israelis have to say, uh, oh, okay. No, I didn't say that's what they're gonna what, what the outcome is gonna be, but that could become the dominant well, Palestinian that, narrative. And uh, listen, the dominant Palestinian mar- narrative will be uh, embraced, I, I fear, by all sorts of people who don't really understand the problem or who don't care about the problem, or very specifically hate the Israelis and don't much like the Jews. And that gets to what may be our last topic. Maybe we'll have time for two. And that's the United Nations, and particularly the United Nations Human Rights Council, which are egregiously anti-Israeli, anti-Zionist, which means, and let's understand, Zionism once meant the idea there should be of the reestablishment of a Jewish state in the, in the ancient homeland of the Jews. Today, Zionism means Israel gets to continue to exist. It seems to me, if you say you're an anti-Zionist, you're for the extermination of, the, uh, of Israel, and you don't really care what happens to the population yeah, when that when that when that occurs, um, is there anything as a diplomat as that can be done about the UN and the UN Human Rights Council, both of which get worse and worse over time when it comes to Israel? Yeah, um, I don't certainly have a uh, a perfect solution for uh, problems at the UN uh, in terms of the one sidedness of the criticism and often the very virulent and not fact based criticism. Uh, of Israel that goes on there. We struggled with it in the administration I served in, uh, as has every administration. Uh, and there have been sort of different flavors of it in different eras. Zionism was racism in the 70s and 80s. Uh, that was repealed. Uh, later, more of a focus on settlements. Uh, certainly, Human Rights Council has been a, 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 a consistent theme, at least over the last 20 years. Uh, and it's dominated by some of the worst human rights abusing regimes in the world, Cuba and Iran and Syria and Venezuela and these types of countries sitting in judgment of others. And who's the one country that they managed to agree on over and over and over and over again to the exclusion of almost every other? It's Israel. It's, it's, it's quite absurd. Uh, that particular council, you know, there's been this difference between how Republican and Democratic administrations have dealt with it. Uh, the Bush administration and then later the Trump administration uh, withdrew from the council and said uh, it's so over the line, we shouldn't legitimize it with our presence. And there's a definitely a viable case to be made that that's how you respond to that kind of uh, absurd, over-the-top, uh, one-sided criticism of Israel. Uh, then the, the Obama administration took a different view, which was uh, there are things we would like to try to accomplish through that council that have nothing to do with Israel. Uh, our presence allows us to work on some of those issues, and our presence allows us to be a voice against the one-sided focus on Israel, and we could not solve it for sure, but maybe mute it, maybe lower the numbers of resolutions, maybe apply some resolutions where they belong on Syria and Iran and so forth. In fact, we had some, I would say, modest success in shifting that, but certainly didn't solve uh, the problem. Uh, I, you know, just given the way the UN is structured, that council is structured, I don't know that we're going to see any change of that uh, anytime soon. Uh, you know, I, I do think our best tool sometimes for uh, pushing back on these types of uh, very unreasonable and very one-sided uh, attacks against Israel is the demonstration of an effort to try to bring the resol- conflict to resolution. It's not that some of the people driving these uh, these these anti-Zionist and even anti-Semitic initiatives would be persuaded by that effort or by even the successful conclusion of a two-state solution. I suspect some of that would go on even the day after uh, the establishment of two states. Uh, but at least it's a rallying point for uh, like-minded countries, for reasonable countries to say, you know what, while there's diplomacy underway, while there's an effort to achieve some solution that seems to have uh, an equitable balance of, of serving both Israelis and Palestinians' legitimate needs, uh, we shouldn't 
uh, pile on uh, to excessive criticism. Uh, that's always been a v- valuable tool in pushing back on that. But uh, the structural problem is you know, built into the UN, and I'm not sure we're going to solve it anytime, maybe in my lifetime. Dan, what do you think about uh, the prospects of the temperature or the environment uh, sort of cooling off if new leadership were in place? I mean, do you think that Israel would get hammered in the same way that it has been by the BDS movement, by various agencies at the UN, if it wasn't Bibi at the helm? I think he is seen by many in the world as uh, somebody who is not interested in or committed to uh, a two-state solution, and that's uh, an additional factor, let's say, although that wasn't always true. You know, he did endorse in 2009 for the first time in his Bar-Ilan University speech uh, a two-state solution, and those was, that was the basis on which we negotiated uh, in the Obama administration. And in fact, we were sort of able to use the fact that those negotiations went away. Kerry was actually, I think, somewhat effective in arguing to uh, Arab governments and other governments, uh, give me some space to try to achieve what we have all agreed we're trying to achieve, and even the Prime Minister of Israel has said it. More recently, uh, he has moved away from that. He hasn't certainly repeated the Bar-Ilan formula. His coalition clearly is not supportive of two states, and he seems to have said it's not going to happen in his lifetime. So, or in his prime ministership. So I, I think that's, a, that's a, a, a factor, but it's frankly a fairly small factor. Um, but if there were any new face, of course, it allows people to look at a, a problem from a new perspective. If that new face said, look, uh, I don't have a Palestinian partner at the moment, but I'm going to do everything I can to keep that option open for the future, uh, that might be uh, enough to give an, Amer- an American administration an additional tool to get people to hold off. But eventually we'll take the emergence also of different Palestinian leadership who can credibly look like a partner to that uh, Israeli leadership trying to preserve what's possible for the future to really make that an effective tool of, of uh, pushing back at the UN. I'll ask a final question that, that's related, and that is right now um, it seems that support for Israel is increasingly becoming or decreasingly a bipartisan issue. Uh, we have so-called progressives in your party and the Democratic Party who uh, I would argue are openly hostile towards Israel. Might that change uh, if Netanyahu is no longer the prime minister and it's a slightly more left of center, still right of center, um, prime minister such as Benny Gantz, it, will that change or is there a dynamic taking place in American politics and between the two parties that is going to make it inevitable for for the foreseeable future for the Republican Party to be the pro-Israel party and the Democratic Party to be just decreasingly that. I I don't think that's inevitable, and I'm not even sure that's an accurate description of what we have. There are certainly voices uh, in the progressive coalition or among some parts of the Democratic Party, although it's quite marginal among office holders. It may be something in the generational shift that we'd see more of later uh, in in office holders that uh, are really outside the mainstream uh, of support for Israel's security and legitimacy and and also a two-state solution and, and therefore have some concern for Palestinian rights. There are some other voices that are more extreme and certainly I'm uh, among those Democrats trying to do some education in those camps and trying to uh, ensure that the, those views don't become more prominent in the party and I, I think we have some ability to do that. Um, some of those people, you're right. Uh, they're, uh, it's an ideological question, uh, and they have bought a certain narrative about Israel that uh, is wrong, uh, that leads to support for things like BDS, uh, that uh, really at its core is an anti-Israel and anti-Zionist and certainly in some cases anti-Semitic uh, manifestation of these views. And that wouldn't be affected very much by a different prime minister uh, in, in Israel. Um, on the other hand, there's definitely a hangover effect because of the uh, tense relationship between uh, President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu. Believe me, I know uh, that story very deeply from the inside, and we'll we'll save uh, some of the some of the the horror stories for another. Not all horror stories, by the way, but some of those the chapters of that for another podcast. Um, but I have to say, I think um, the the speech for in Congress for the Iran deal, the way things ended on a very tense note uh, around UN Security Council resolution uh, resolution two three three four, the way uh, President uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has sort of contrasted his relationship with President Trump, who of course is very disliked by those same uh, Democrats uh, and others, uh, with his relationship with President Obama. Um, 
probably means that uh, Netanyahu's uh, personality doesn't sort of <laughs> help people like me in the Democratic Party, uh, d- you know, do the work we need to be doing. But, you know, it's an Israeli democracy. The Israeli prime minister will be who the Israeli, prime, the Israeli people choose it to choose that it, it will be. And uh, there are certain fundamental principles that we should try to hold to in this relationship, regardless of who leads both countries. What do you think about uh, what happens after Trump? Um, I mean, there's a there's you're there's, hoping I'm hoping you're talking about in 23 months, uh, whenever it happens, <laughs> um, <Or> sooner. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I think what we're watching right now in the U.S. is this sort of pendulum effect or a whiplash that that's going on. Right. So you had sort of the Bush administration and its policies in the Middle East of kind of more forceful engagement. Then you had uh, Obama, Obama come in and say, uh, you know, I am the anti Bush. And then you had Trump come in and say, I'm the anti-Obama. Um, if, from Israel's perspective, where do we find that equilibrium? Is that something that we can expect from any Democrat or even any Republican? Uh, I mean, you're there. You're watching as, as yeah. uh, politicians come through. What do the prospects look like from your perspective? Well, I get this question a lot from Israelis. They ask, you know, some version of our uh, – is Israel losing the support of, of Democrats or progressives or young liberal American Jews? There's a different flavor of the question. And my answer is, as I said a moment ago, look, I think there are some elements of that. I wouldn't exaggerate it, but at least at the margins and maybe pushing in from the margins, you hear those voices and I'll take on my shoulders the responsibility uh, as uh, a Democrat and a progressive and a, an American Jewish leader who, who, who believes there are fundamental principles that should be upheld uh, to do the education and, and keep the party where uh, I want it to be, uh, support for Israel's security and legitimacy and uh, U.S. commitment to those things and the security partnership and a uh, commitment to help Israel stay Jewish and democratic through a two-state solution, even if that takes the rest of uh, my lifetime and longer uh, to achieve that we keep it alive in the meantime. I'll take that role. What I do ask for my Israeli friends who ask that question, if it's important to you that Israel remain uh, a point of bipartisan consensus, please bear in mind how your decisions and your actions and your words uh, will help or hurt <laughs> the effort that people like me are making. Sometimes the Israeli language, sometimes the personalities, sometimes the policies um, uh, make that much harder. And if uh, they don't take into account that there's a pendulum, uh, you know, obviously over time, uh, if there's a firm Israeli decision to write off the two-state solution as dead and no longer uh, even desirable and taking a series of actions that would make it impossible, even if, you know, maybe it's imaginary, but even if much better and much different and much more reasonable Palestinian leadership uh, were to emerge, uh, that will make it harder uh, for us to keep this a bipartisan issue. So there's work to do on our side. I think there's work to do on the Republican side to not uh, treat this as a partisan political football. And so I hope we have partners on both parties who will do that. And there's work on the Israeli side to recognize that if you, let's say, embrace Trump like he's the Messiah and, uh, you know, speak of Obama, even in the past tense, as, you know, an enemy, uh, you know, that's going to make it a lot harder uh, the next time you have uh, Democrats in power to feel like they have the same friend uh, that I want us always to feel we have between these two countries. Very stimulating, very provocative. You've given me lots to think about. Thanks to you, Ambassador Shapiro. John, thanks to you. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. You can also tweet us at Foreign Policy on Twitter. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.